Welcome to the Real Education Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Bowles, and on this show, I interview remarkable people who think way outside the box in education. To listen to more episodes, learn more about my guests, or become a patron of this ad and sponsor-free show, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. You can also email me at yours truly at blakebowles.com. Now, on to the show. My guest today is Carsey Blanton, a singer, songwriter, and lifelong unschooler who lives in New Orleans. Carsey is also one of the people I featured in my book, The Art of Self-Directed Learning. Carsey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Blake. Happy to be here. You grew up as an unschooler, and it's a term that you still apply to yourself today at age 29. So what does unschooling mean to you? Um, I've always really liked the phrase interest-led learning. Um, so I think of unschooling as uh, the the state of following your interests um, in as much depth as you feel moved to. Um, and I also think you know the pro- project-based learning movement is closely related to unschooling in my mind. So I think my education involved taking on a lot of big long-term projects and seeing them through to completion. So I think all of those are related uh, to me, to unschooling. you still feel a connection to the unschooling community in the United States or elsewhere? I do. Um, I So I went to Not Back to School Camp, which I think we'll probably talk about later. And um, that community has been a big part of my life um, since I first started going when I was 13 um, and remains a big part of my life today. So let's talk about what unschooling looked like for you as a young child. Tell us about where you grew up and give us everything before your big move out west. <laughs> okay. Um, well, so first of all, my my mom uh, got a hold of John Holt and John Taylor Gatto um, when she was pregnant with me, and that was the first she heard about um, pretty much any kind of alternative education. And uh, in my first couple years of life, she decided that she didn't want to put me in school um, based on her reading. And also she, uh, like me, was a pretty serious introvert, and she just didn't have a great time in school and kind of didn't want to subject me to that. So that was part of the decision. Um, so it kind of, she was learning how to be an unschooling parent, um, as I was growing up. So I feel like my experience of unschooling evolved over the years. Um, mostly in that when I was younger, there was a bit more of a curriculum. Like we had, you know, an hour or two a day, we would sit down and do some schoolwork. And then as I got older, things got looser. (laughs) Um, I think mostly because my mom got more comfortable with the process and trusted me more, um, as a learner. So by the time I was, 10 or so, um, my education consisted mostly of reading a lot and running around um, the land where I grew up and, you know, catching lizards and salamanders and stuff. Um, (laughs) And then I did have projects, like most most years I would have a big project that I took on. Like one year I wanted to learn about marine biology because I thought that was something I might want to do as an adult. Um, And so my mom took me to the Baltimore Aquarium to talk to some marine biologists. And I did this big um, experiment involving tide pools, studying tide pools uh, on the coast. So it involved all all kinds of that kind of stuff. (laughs) And um, then I got interested in music when I was about 12. 
12 or 13, and that became my primary study for the next, oh, 20 years. <laughs> Did someone put a guitar in your hands? What was the big moment? Um, well, I had been uh, interested in music already. I, when I was a kid, I took piano lessons. Um, and then actually the big moment for me was at not back to school camp. So the first year I went to camp, I was 13 and they have these talent shows every night. And I saw, uh, Gabe Lester, who I still know, <laughs> and, um, Diane Clark Graham, who I kind of still know. They, they played a song together and I just thought it was the coolest, hottest, most awesome thing I could imagine. And that was what got me into it. <laughs> Tell me more about your not back to school camp experience. You went there when the camp was still pretty young. Yeah. So I think it started in 96 and I started going in 98. Um, so it was a smaller group than um, what is going on these days where it's like, what, five, six sessions now? I don't even Almost, know. Yeah. Not with, keeping with... up with it as much. But, <laughs> but yeah, it was just a single session outside of Eugene. And I think there were maybe 60 campers the first year I went. Um, and it was just huge for me. I mean, I was, uh, I had actually went to school for one year when I was 12, um, basically because I was lonely and I wanted to hang out with more kids my own age. Um, and I liked school all right, although I didn't feel very challenged by it. Um, so when I went to camp the first time, I was kind of on the fence about whether to go to school or not. And I realized that what I was really looking for was a community of uh, like-minded individuals. Uh, anyway, so I was, I realized I was looking for a community of people my own age who were into the stuff I was into. And I found that at camp and I continued to find it, um, for the next 10 years, I kept going to camp. 10 years as a camper and did, you became an uh, instructor also? Yeah, I became an advisor at camp and I actually, so I started going when I was 13 and then at 16, I moved across the country to live with a group of campers and advisors. Um, so I kind of got more and more firmly embedded in the camp community. <laughs> yeah, let's dwell on that moment because for parents listening out there, it might sound like a little, a little crazy to let your 16 year old daughter move from Virginia to Oregon to mm -hmm. go live with a essentially a, a commune of artists. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to hear about um, how you got this idea to do it and how you pitched it to your parents and, and how it worked out in the beginning. Yeah. Well, it was a little crazy. I, w I would like to frame it as like just this unschooling triumph moment, but it was not entirely that. A lot of it was that, you know, I was kind of an angsty teenager and I lived in a small town and um, there wasn't much there for me. Um, most of the people I knew, I grew up in central Virginia in a town of like about 6,000 people. Most of the people I knew were in school. Most of them came from much more conservative families. Um, and really I, the community I was part of in rural Virginia was like, there was a lot of drinking. There was a lot of like field parties, which basically is going into the middle of a field and getting drunk or doing drugs. <laughs> and so you know, I felt like, okay, my options here are to be part of that scene or to spend all my time alone. Um, so I need to go somewhere else. And so the, the artist commune, more or less, that is a pretty good description of it. Um, in Eugene was eight people, mostly musicians and a couple of artists, um, who were all living together. They were living really cheaply. Um, and I met them through camp and I just kind of fell in love with all of them at the same time. <laughs> um, and I think because I was sort of having a lot of trouble at home, my mom, to her credit, was more open to the idea. She she could tell that 
you know, there wasn't much left for me in the town I was living in. And so she actually flew to Eugene with me to check it out and meet everybody. Um, and I think her, her position when I left was basically, well, I would rather you stay home, but it's your decision. And so I decided to go. And I'm really glad I did because it, it was in many ways the beginning of my um, becoming serious about music um, and songwriting and, and seeing the possibility of uh, playing music as a career. And to fast forward a little bit, you ended up touring with Paul Simon, with mm-hmm. the Wood Brothers. You are doing your own tours right now. You've gone international. Mm-hmm. And uh, paint a picture for us of how you went from having this kind of vague interest in guitar inspired by a summer camp to being on your own at age 16 to getting to these over these huge hurdles. What, what was your musical education? Well, uh, I think that it started alone in my room. <laughs> um, <laughs> I spent many hours learning to play the guitar um, as a young teenager um, by listening to records and picking out the songs by ear, um, which is not the prescribed method of learning to play the guitar generally. Um, but I'm really glad that I learned that way because it um, gave me so much more information about um, listening and about sort of subtleties of song construction than I think I would have gotten if I had done a more typical guitar education. So I did that sort of obsessively for many hours a day for a few years. And then moving to Eugene was the first time that I um, you know, played in a band, learned songs with other people, wrote songs with other people, became not such a solitary activity. Um, and so I think that was my education about how to play, play well with others, <laughs> basically. Um, and then, you know, it's funny, I, in my interviews for my music stuff, people often ask how I got started. And um, for me, there wasn't a moment where I thought, this is for me, this is my path, I'm going to do it. It was more like, you know, I had a job when I was 17 as a grant writer um, that I liked. I wasn't getting paid very much and I you know I didn't have a college education and so I was kind of working my way into the professional world and I thought this is probably the most enjoyable job that I can think of that's like a job job and so I thought I should try music just to see if I could do that as a job because that's the only thing I could think of that would that I might like better than grant writing which was pretty much being a self-employed writer um so I moved back to the East Coast when I was 21, and the thought at the time was, I'm going to try being a professional musician for a year, and if it doesn't work out, then I'll go back to grant writing, which is something I like just fine. Um, and at the end of that year, I had a manager, and I had, you know, not the Paul Simon level gigs, but I had some shows, and I kind of got hooked on it, is the best way I can describe it. Um, and it has been a lot of work. And I think a lot of the things I learned from unschooling have really come in handy um, in this career path. But mostly it's just something that I love so much that I can't imagine giving it up at this point. Can you share a few stories of how you did kind of climb the ladder up to these prog- progressively bigger opportunities? And uh, what did you have to do? What did the work look like uh, for, for somebody outside of the musical world? It just seems like a a, a total black box. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's to me, there's two kinds of work. Um, there's the creative work, which is mostly internal, um, 
but is still a lot of work. I mean, most most days I have a studio in my backyard where I am right now, and most days I get up and I have my tea and I sit in the studio for a few hours and um, try to write songs or learn songs. And that's just work between me and myself. <laughs> and in many ways, I think that's the hardest work, um, but it's also the most rewarding. Um, and then there's the professional work, which is like, you know, cold calling people, writing emails, trying to get on tours as an opener, um, introducing myself to people in the music industry who might be able to help me, um, playing lots of gigs, especially the first five years, I basically played any gig that anyone would give me. Um, and that was a lot of work in a different kind of way. You know, it just involves being out in the world and doing things that are scary <laughs> over and over again until they aren't as scary anymore. Um, and it's, it's hard to say, I don't feel like there were a lot of big breaks. Like there were a few moments that stick out, like, you know, my manager calling and saying that I was going to open for Paul Simon. That was huge. Um, but as far as how that happened, it was a combination of, um, just persistence and luck basically. Yeah. Luck is a, a really interesting element in all this. And I think an interesting element in the story of unschooling mm-hmm. also, because it's, uh, it's easy to paint a picture after the fact um, of a successful person who didn't go to school or didn't go to college, but it's hard to really separate the stories of, of luck or stories of um, hard work from each other. Totally. Um, yeah. And I think that it depends sort of what part of the story you're in when you ask. Um, like I'm reminded of, so uh, I have a younger brother who was also unschooled for most of his life. Um, I was an avid reader from when I was about four. I just loved reading. It was really easy for me and it was always fun. And I think that in a lot of ways that gave my mom the confidence she needed to keep me out of school. Um, and my younger brother was not. He had he was dyslexic um, when he was younger. He had like a mild form of dyslexia. Um, and he just had a lot of trouble reading. Um, and so it wasn't until he was a young teenager that he really got the pleasure of reading and then started writing also and found that to be really pleasurable. And now he's about to graduate college and he's a great writer and he's gotten so much praise, you know, and so many sort of accolades for his reading and writing skills. <laughs> so I feel like in some ways now it looks like an unschooling success story, but if you had asked when he was 11, it would have looked like, oh, what is this parent doing? She's letting her kid, you know, do this crazy alternative education thing that's clearly not working. Um, and I think the same thing is true of my music career. Like if you asked me, I'm 29 now. Um, and I've been doing it for about 10 years professionally. If you'd asked me, oh, six years ago, some of these questions, it would have looked like I was a failure. <laughs> would have looked like, oh, she's got this dream. She's throwing everything against the wall, but clearly it's not really working out. <laughs> so, yeah, I think persistence is more than half the battle. Um, and I am, I do think I learned uh, persistence from unschooling. And maybe I would have learned it if I. I'd been in school, but I have so many memories of working on a project that was really hard, and I only wanted to do it because I wanted to do it. No one else was telling me to do it, and I ran into a roadblock, and I just had to kind of smash through it painfully. <laughs> and as an unschooler, as a child, what would happen if you didn't smash through that roadblock? What was the, the consequence? Well, so the way my uh, the way mine and my mom's relationship was set up around it, I would basically commit to things for a certain amount of time. So piano lessons are a good example because those came in handy later. Um, I committed to 
each year, basically. So I would enroll for a full year of piano lessons. And the agreement was I had to finish the year. I had to go, go to the recital, which is the end of the year. And if I didn't want to go back, I didn't have to go back. And so every year, about halfway through, I would get incredibly frustrated. More than halfway through, actually. It was always like a month before the recital when I was trying to master a piece and it was at the edge of what I was capable of. And I would get so frustrated. I would throw my piano books on the floor and throw a temper tantrum. And my mom would say, well, you've only got one more month and then you can quit. <laughs> um, but I did have to get to the end. I had to get through the recital. Um, and I really appreciate that. I'm really glad that she did that. And it didn't feel like pressure because I felt aware that I had chosen that. You know, I entered willingly into the agreement and then I had to carry it out. Um, so your mom acted as a sort of accountability buddy exactly. in this sense and not so much a parent imposing her will upon you. Yep, exactly. And I'm so glad she did because I do, I still identify that same feeling in myself and the way to resolve it is to say to myself, well, you chose this, this is your job, you said you were going to do it and now you have to do it. <laughs> um, and in a way it's harder than just having a boss who says, well, you have to do it or you're fired. Um, but it's also a lot more rewarding for me. What other ways do you think unschooling has affected the way you approach your career? Um, the main one is I think that I'm used to being uh, a weirdo. <laughs> 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 and what I mean by that is I, I'm, not, I'm not very, uh, I don't feel invested in other people thinking that I have a legitimate form of success. I'm more invested in my own um, internal sort of metrics of success. Um, so I'm, I'm used to telling people, oh, I don't go to school, I'm homeschooled, and having them say, like, well, that's weird. What's that like? And kind of look askance at me. And so I think I've made a lot of choices in my career that I wouldn't have made if I had been more interested in um, external measures of success or legitimacy. Um, and one example is I I'd, I'd, um, sell my music, pay what you please which is a decision I made about four years ago. Um, and I used to only do it at my shows. I would say, okay, I have these CDs. Um, I want you to buy them. Um, but if you don't have $15, then that's okay. I still want you to have it. So I have this kind of pitch that I do on the stage where I say, um, I make music because it's my passion, not for the money. And if you want it, I want you to have it. Um, but I also really like money, so please give me some money. <laughs> I've heard your pitch. It's, it's very good and it's very truthful. Uh-huh. Well, thank and you. It works. It, it does work. Um, and so now I sell my music digitally the same way. People can pay anything they want or they can take my music for free off my website. Um, and that's actually much more common now than it was a few years ago. But when I started out, it was definitely, you know, a lot of the musicians I knew thought I was totally nuts. Um, and I kind of took the position of, well, this is how I think it's going to work best over the next few years because of what's happening with the internet and what seems crazy now is probably going to seem totally normal soon. And, um, I'm very proud of myself for that one. Cause I think that it's been pretty normalized <laughs> at this point. Yeah. You're virtually a pioneer. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, so do you think unschooling, um, gave you the sense of independence or, or perhaps more likely it, it bolstered your, the independence you already had that you started with maybe as, as an accident of your genes. Yeah, I would, I think more of the latter. I think that 
I'm naturally very independent and I'm naturally very creative. My creativity is sort of the driving force in my life. And I think in many ways, unschooling is the ideal environment for that kind of personality. Um, and so I think I would have done fine in school. And I think it's possible that my sense of independence and creativity would have sort of triumphed and led me to a similar place. Um, but I feel very, it, unschooling was very easy and natural for me um, because of my personality. And I think that it allowed me to develop those characteristics more and at an earlier age than I would have otherwise. Do you have any friends who unschooled as teenagers and it did not work out for them? It was not a good fit for them and, and you saw them struggle with this that you can talk about on this podcast? Huh. Interesting. I mean, I think the story of my younger brother um, comes up because I think he was in some ways, the opposite of what I was saying. His natural personality does not take well to unschooling. He really likes structure. He really loves um, groups and and collaborating with people. Um, It's easy for him to feel isolated. Um, And, but still, (laughs) because unschooling is so flexible, like it it basically means, you know, a different thing for each person. Um, And that's built into the concept. Um, He was able to make it work for him. Um, as well. And he, he, he did that through, you know, he utilized some of the educational um, opportunities available to him that were a little more traditional. So he went to school part time and, you know, now he's in college and all of that made sense for him more than it would have for me. Um, so I think some people don't take as naturally to the kind of unschooling that I did, but it seems like um, in that case, you're still able to utilize whatever's available to you. Let's talk about college. Yeah, it does. And um, you, anyone who reads your blog at carcyblanton.com immediately will realize that you are a highly intelligent and thoughtful person. And you write these really thought-provoking blog posts. And um, what they probably don't pick up unless they dig into your site or into your, you know, they, they really Google stalk you, is that you didn't go to college. And I think most people would assume that you did go to college to have that level of writing ability or to just have the the savviness to piece together your own independent career as a musician. Mm. And so uh, I guess my question is, um, how do you feel you developed your your intellect? How do you feel you developed as a young person? Um, And other people get a lot of their their development, a lot of their growth that happens in in college. Mm -hmm. And, And you didn't go through that institution. So what do you think substituted for you? Yeah. Um, I wish I had a more exciting answer, but for me, it's really just reading. I just, I have always found reading really fun and really easy and really rewarding. Um, and I've been reading everything I was interested in since I was four or five. (laughs) And I do think that for me, um, that's just been kind of an all consuming passion. And so I've picked up a lot of, uh, a lot of skill from reading and from writing. Um, I've done very little uh, formalized education, even even with myself. Like I haven't sat down and tried to learn how to write essays, um, but I've been interested in reading and, and writing for so long that I feel like it just kind of seeped in. Um, a little bit the way that I learned to write songs, which is something that there isn't really a formal training for, so you don't get asked about it very much. Like, how did you figure out how to write a song? But you know, the way I figured it out is I sat in my room and I listened to songs and I learned how to play them. I did that for hours and hours and hours, millions of hours. And then I tried to make up my own and I 
you know, was critical of my own songs in the same way that I'm critical of other people's songs. Um, and I think I did the same thing with writing. So um, I just, it's something that I love and am passionate about. And to me, that makes it worth getting really good at it. Um, yeah. Can you, can you name any books that, that really changed your life? Oh gosh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> uh, gosh, I don't even know where to start with that. Actually, the first book that I remember reading and loving so much that I wanted to read it again was A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, um, which is a book about a 12-year-old girl, and I was 12 when I read it. So it made a big impact on me, um, and it's a beautifully written book. I think I've read it like 10 or 12 times since then. Um, and I remember reading a paragraph in that book and just being really moved by it and, and finding it so pleasurable. Like it, it felt like I was eating something delicious. Um, and I've had that experience so many times since then. I think it's really a driving force in my life. I, I feel that way about beautiful writing and about music, be beautiful music, that it's just so intensely pleasurable that I just want to hear it again or read it again until I can kind of get all the juice out of it. <laughs> you have a, a secret for motivating yourself to read? And this sounds like I, I, I'm going to get on my case for just asking that question. But, <laughs> but what I'm trying to say is a lot of people, I think, would like to be able to sit down with a, bu with a book and hold focus mm -hmm. and devour it and process it. But we just find so many ways to get distracted that our reading list goes from 50 books down to two books per year. Yeah. Um, so do you feel like you're just naturally inclined to be a reader or do you have a, some trick you can share with us? <laughs> the only trick I have, um, and I use this for reading and a few other things, is that part of the fun of being self-employed as an artist is that I get to decide what my job is. And I decided a couple years ago that reading is part of my job. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, and it sounds a little bit silly, like, oh, sure, you can just make it part of your job. But I am a writer, and so it does make sense. Reading is actually part of my job. And I think of it now as my subconscious mind is what does most of my writing. And the only influence I have over my subconscious is what I feed to it. And so uh, the things I listen to and the books I read, you know, they come out in some way that is hard to identify later in my own writing. So I try to feed it things that are good. <laughs> I try to feed it healthy food, basically. Um, and so for me, it's just a little switch where I say, oh, it's part of my job and here I am at work. So I better sit down and read this book. And somehow it does actually help. <laughs> I'm going to riff on that comment you made about um, being self-employed. And then I want to come back to the college mm -hmm. topic. Do you feel like uh, unschooling necessarily produces entrepreneurial skills. Do you feel like those go hand in hand and that has helped you be successfully self-employed? Yeah, I think it does in certain ways. I think that not being afraid to be a weirdo is pretty big as an entrepreneur. <laughs> um, not being overly concerned with what the general public might think of your life decisions. I do think that's a natural outcome of unschooling and it's one that is so helpful in any kind of creative field. Even though your your audience and the people paying your bills is the general public, and we tell ourselves we have to make things for their tastes. Um, yeah. What's the balance between those two? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, it's sort of just a matter of keeping the faith, I think. Like, like I have to keep the faith that my audience um, 
likes what I do and they like my actual personality and my form of creativity. Um, and so that means that um, ultimately I, my only master is myself and my own ear and my own eye, right? So It's a very Steve Jobs type <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> right. I guess so. Me and Steve Jobs, you know, we have a lot in common. Um, <laughs> so I guess to me it's like I, I feel – I do have to remind myself of this over and over again, but I do feel fairly confident, intellectually at least, that um, if I really love some work that I made, then it's good. And so I release it knowing that I love it, and that means that somebody out there will love it too. Um, and usually that's the case, and if it's not the case, then oh well, it's not a huge tragedy. <laughs> um, as far as other things that, um, other ways that unschooling has helped me as an entrepreneur, um, I think think that internal motivation we talked about just just, just the, the experience of having a big idea that will take a long time to realize and going through the process and handling all the problems and facing all the roadblocks and all of that um, I, I think I started going through that process at a younger age than the average person and really just like anything else the more you do it the better you get at doing it and so you know, taking on a big project like making an album, which takes, you know, a year or more um, and lots of money and I have to hire all these people and I have to get them to do it the way I want. Um, I think that comes a little more naturally to me than it would have if I hadn't had that experience um, from such a young age. How do you think your experiences, especially in the let's see, 18 to 25 age range, uh, compared to those, maybe your friends who went to college, well, Blake, um, <laughs> I think that I have been lucky in a lot of ways, and it's hard to say how much um, it's about unschooling and how much it's just kind of, you know, my genetics or my parents or whatever it is. But um, I was blessed with a skill that I really love doing and that I'm pretty good at. Um, so I started trying to do music professionally at 21. And it went well enough that I was able to do it full time within a year or two. Um, and that has meant that I haven't spent my 20s wondering what I'm supposed to do with my life. Um, unlike everyone else I know, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Um, and so, again, I think that's partly that, you know, because I was unschooled, I had already been doing I'd been writing and performing my own songs for about 10 years when I started doing doing it professionally. Um, and so I just had, you know, more time. Uh, on most of the people who were doing it. Um, and also maybe the independent mindedness helped and maybe that would have happened anyway. Um, it's hard to say, but I think that it's sort of baffling to me um, how much time is wasted <laughs> um, among the people that I know, just kind of wringing their hands and saying like, well, I sort of like this, but I sort of like this other thing and which one should I do? And I think my attitude tends to be, well, just pick one and do it. And if you don't like it anymore, do something else. <laughs> Um, and part of that I think does come from unschooling. You know, I've, I've tried a lot of things. I've researched a lot of things. I've studied a lot of different things and, um, I've seen how easy it is to have one passion until you're done with it and then have another passion. <laughs> doesn't seem like a problem. Do you have friends who have had really incredible life changing experiences in college that have made you reconsider your, your decision not to, to apply? Uh, or has it been more stories that have reinforced your, <laughs> your decision as a good one? 
Yeah, it's been more like that. I think mostly because I'm I'm in the arts. Um, and so, you know, I have a lot of friends who are musicians and songwriters and writers uh, and visual artists. Almost all of them went to college. And most of them came out with a story that went something like, okay, uh, I just spent four years in class instead of doing my art form uh, or trying to build a career doing my art form. And now I have, you know, 50 or a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. And of course you can't pay that kind of debt in the arts, <laughs> at least not until you've been doing it for 10 or 20 years. Um, so I think having an arts degree is a little bit of a racket. That tends to be how I feel about it at this point. Um, unless it's like there's an artist who you just love passionately and you really want to study with them as your mentor and they're a professor at a school you can get into and afford, um, which I think is not usually the case. Um, but I think the arts, maybe more than anything else, um, requires so many years of just being really poor just to build an actual following that's willing to pay your bills, <laughs> um, that if you don't have the luxury of you know, making a couple hundred dollars a month for years and years, it's just way, way harder to get started. So you said you were, you feel blessed to have um, identified this skill that you're really good at and you were able to turn into a career pretty quickly. Let's imagine that this was not the case and that you didn't have something that seemed like an obvious choice for you to focus on. Um, what do you think of the decision to go to college to find out what you're interested in, which most people seem to, to want to do? Yeah. From where I'm sitting, it looks like the most expensive way of figuring out what you want to do. <laughs> I can think of a lot of other cheaper ways, um, such as traveling around the world, um, getting an internship, uh, moving somewhere that someone you like lives and following them around <laughs> and figuring out how they do what they do. Um, so I, I think that, um, College is often framed as a way to decide what you want to do. And for a lot of people, they come out still not knowing what they want to do, um, but now they have all this extra debt. So I think that that's a, that's a poor reason to go to school. There are good reasons to go to college, but I don't think that's one of them. Tell me the good reasons. Let's hear the other side. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what it looks like to me that if you know the career that you want and it's one that requires a degree that's the best reason to go to college. And I think that that's a very small percentage of the people I know who go to college um, went for that reason. So if you know you want to be a lawyer, you need a law degree, you're going to go to law school. That makes sense to me. Um, and I think, again, as I mentioned before, if, there, if there's a particular teacher, a particular professor that teaches at a college that you have the ability to go to, and you really feel like they're the ideal mentor for you, and you can't think of anyone else who would be as good of a mentor, then that's another reason to go to college. Although, in, in many cases, you could also just audit their classes for free. <laughs> so, depends on the precise situation. Let's shift to talking about how you fund your life as an independent singer-songwriter. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned already that you have a pretty unique approach to giving your music away for free, which you've been doing which you, for four or five years. Mm -hmm. And um, you've also done a Kickstarter campaign that was pretty fabulously successful. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's talk about the Kickstarter campaign a little bit later. What, uh, what enabled you to develop your musical body of work in the early years when you uh, did not have much income coming in from gigs, when you didn't have income coming in from selling records? Mm -hmm. 
Well, um, so the first four years I was getting serious about music, I was living in that group house in Eugene um, and playing in bands with the people I lived with. Um, and I was living on about $150 a month at that point for most of that time. <laughs> that is rent plus food plus other expenses? Yeah. That, that is incredible. How did- I, I know. I don't even – it sounds crazy to me <laughs> that I did it. Um, there were eight of us and a baby living in a three-bedroom house. <laughs> All right. That's one step. That's, that was a lot of it. So I think rent was $80 a month because I lived in a basement room, which was not that nice. But it was fine. I mean, I was 16. I was living by myself. I thought it was the best thing ever. <laughs> um, we dumpster dived, dumpster dove. I'm not sure what the past tense of that is. <laughs> um, dumpster dived. I think it's dived for most of our food um i think we all pitched in like ten dollars a month for bulk uh staples like oil and flour stuff that we couldn't get out of a dumpster um and then we made these communal meals every night somebody else had to cook every night and we made dumpster meals basically we got all this fresh produce and well semi-fresh produce and uh had these group meals so so i was living incredibly cheaply for the first four or five years uh that i was you know studying music, learning how to write songs, and learning how to play in bands, basically. Um, And then when I moved back to the East Coast, I moved in with my parents for six months and was living for free. And during that time, I worked at a coffee shop, and I was just playing as many gigs as I could, and I had a CD that I could sell. Um, And basically, I saved a little money, and then I moved into a really cheap, another cheap group house. I think I was paying $400 a month at that point. and just kind of lived as cheaply as I could for the <laughs> for the next several years until I um, made a reasonable amount of income from music. Was able to quit the coffee shop job after about a year. So you moonlighted? Yeah, I did. Yep, I moonlighted and, for a while until the gigs picked up. Yeah. And for any young, aspiring, perhaps unschooled artists out there listening to this, uh, do you feel like you have any advice that you could give to yourself back then when you were taking these, uh, these side jobs and the, um, working in coffee shops, do you feel like you would have done it any differently? Um, not really. Although only because I got a really good manager after just a few months of living in Philly. Um, and so he gave me a ton of incredible advice about how to build an actual career and make actual money. (laughs) Um, most of which has to do with being good and putting on a good show. So, so my first manager um, went to all of my shows for the first year and a half or two years that we worked together and gave me feedback on them after the show. So I would play a show and then he would come to the green room and say, uh, that song didn't go over that well. Like, what do you think about that? He would say, that banter was a little weird. We should, you should come up with some different banter for that part. Um, and I got really comfortable t- taking his feedback. And he gave me a lot of it. (laughs) So I think after the first few months of working with him, I had a much better, more appealing show. Um, And that made it possible for people to want to give me gigs, basically. Um, And I think that's the main lesson in the arts is like, be willing to take feedback because people need to really like you or they're not going to pay you for what you're doing. (laughs) So you hold that. Uh, in balance with the I make work that I feel you know represents me yeah and and also you are open to feedback and you won't keep doing something that's not working forever 
exactly. Yeah, and for me, I think there's a corollary depending what what form of creativity you do. But for me, you know, I write a lot of songs. I have hundreds of songs. And so on a typical night, if I'm opening, I'm only going to play seven or eight songs. And if I'm headlining, I'm only going to play 15 songs. And so I'm picking the most crowd-pleasing 15 out of the 200 songs that I've written. <laughs> uh, so in that way, I'm sort of pandering, you could think. Um, but they're all songs that I wrote because I thought they were good. And I finished them, you know, and was happy with what I had at the end. So it doesn't, doesn't feel like I'm selling my soul by choosing the 15 that the crowd's going to enjoy the most. Did you have any other people in your life like this manager who served a mentorship or uh, an authority role who really helped you along the path? Um, my mom has been a mentor for my whole life, of course. <laughs> um, but one thing I really appreciate about uh, her approach to parenting is that she gave me honest feedback about my work. Um, so you know, I would show her my writing from a young age and I would play her my songs and she was never mean, but she also wasn't, she didn't do the like pat me on the head and say, Oh honey, that's great thing that I think a lot of parents do. Um, and I do think that made me better. And it also made me more comfortable with feedback from an early age. So let's go back and talk about that Kickstarter, which was, well, I'm not, I'll just let you tell the story. How did the Kickstarter fit into your life? When did the idea come to you? Um, so the Kickstarter, oh, sorry, can you hear that, the neighbors talking outside? Nope. Okay, good. Uh, so I had an idea for an album I wanted to make, um, four, three or four years ago. Um, I had released, uh, three albums of all original songs, and, um, I love singing jazz songs. That's uh, a lot of what I learned with. So when I was singing, I sat on my floor and learned how to play songs. A lot of those were these jazz standards sung by Billie Holiday, who was then and is still my favorite singer of all time. Um, so I loved all these old jazz songs, and a lot of them um, sort of, I felt like they had fallen off the face of history and people didn't know them anymore. Um, so after I put out my record, Idiot Heart, I thought, okay, maybe my next record will be a covers record because I want to like pay homage to all these old jazz songs. Um, and I kind of ruminated on that for a while. And in the interim, I moved to New Orleans, which, of course, is a great place to find jazz musicians to hire <laughs> to play on your record. Um, and I had been considering doing a Kickstarter for a while, and I felt like I didn't have the right project. And um, I thought I would, I would try out this jazz project. And um, I think that was a great decision. I ended up calling the project Jazz is for Everybody, and the, the message was basically about how jazz has become this museum piece and, and the average person feels like it's not for them and it's not about them and they can't understand it. And I wanted to make a record that was really just enjoyable and pleasant and accessible, um, whether or not you'd ever listened to jazz before. Um, and that message ended up drawing a lot of new fans. So I didn't just get donations from my own fans. I also got all these new fans from that, from running that Kickstarter. And but you didn't just have like a few new fans trickled in. You had this flood of people and support. And I'm wondering, do you, do you see the Kickstarter as really the culmination of um, the audience that you spent so much um, blood, sweat, and tears building up over the past decade? Did they really respond and deliver? Was this their, their shining moment? <laughs> yes, I think it was. Um, 
it's funny, you know, being in this kind of work, you don't really know who's out there. Like I get some idea of who my fans are from playing shows and I get some idea from Facebook. Um, but it's pretty hard to tell how much actual support you have until you do something like Kickstarter where you're saying, Hey, if you like my music, put your money where your mouth is and send me some dough. Um, so I really didn't know what to expect, but I, I did find there's a website called launchandrelease.com, which is about music Kickstarters specifically. And it has all these graphs in it about how many fans you have and how much money you can expect to get from them. So I set my original funding goal at 29000 which was actually my the metric said I could only raise 23000 so it was already kind of over, over asking. Um, so I figured based on my fan base that I could raise about $25,000 and I ended up raising $60,000. Um, so I think that's partly because my fans were more excited than I expected them to be. <laughs> and I hadn't done crowdfunding before and so I think they were like, oh wow, we can give you money and share this thing and they got excited about it. Um, and it's also because I just, it went a little bit viral and, you know, nobody really understands how that works, least of all me. <laughs> and when we wrap up here, tell me what is next for uh, you, Carsey? Uh, are you going to be staying in New Orleans? Do you have other big projects on the, on the horizon that we should know about? Yeah, well, I plan to stay in New Orleans for the foreseeable future. Um, I love it down here. It's 75 degrees and sunny right now in the beginning of March <laughs> is one of the re many reasons I'm going to stay here. Um, and I am currently writing for my next record. So I plan to be in the studio this coming fall. Um, and I'll probably be releasing in early 2016, if I had to guess. Uh, this summer, I have a pretty exciting tour. I'm going to be going to Europe with the Wood Brothers, touring in Denmark and the Netherlands and Germany. And then I'm opening a tour for the Weepies, who are another great band um, back here in the States. So kind of just back to the old grindstone. The old, <laughs> the old ball and chain. Yep. Playing cool gigs and writing songs and recording them. It's pretty sweet. It's, I'm living the dream. <laughs> My guest today has been Carsey Blanton. Thank you, Carsey. Thank you, Blake. This is the Real Education Podcast. This show is produced with the assistance of Zen Zenith, who also created the music. For more episodes, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.